good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is a sound check. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. <clears throat> All right. I'm just wishing people a good morning. <clears throat> you, you might um, notice, you might have noticed already, that uh, without any conferring, there are certain kind of threads that, that the Lord weaves into the worship, into the word I'm about to give, into the, the words that he gives through prophecy and stuff like that. Let's see if you can pick out a couple more as we get started. Um, <clears throat> just so that you know, if you haven't been around um, over the last however long... Uh, you find us at quite an interesting point in our journey as a church to understanding the whole of Scripture. In order to understand the New Testament, you have to get to grips with the Old, particularly the story of the Exodus, which many a theologian has described as the controlling narrative of the entire Bible. So it's often the first thing that would pop into a first century uh, believer's mind as they're reading the scripture, the Exodus story. So we've been trying, like them, to develop what we call a, an Exodus mindset. And to that end, we are engaged as a church in a long-term study of Exodus. And you can find the series so far available um, on podcast on the church website, www.thekingdomvineyard.com. The is important, otherwise you get some vineyard uh, it actually grows grapes and stuff. At the, um, at the middle point in the series, where we find ourselves at Mount Sinai, we want to uh, step back a while into the New Testament, and we're about to embark on uh, a study of the letter of the Hebrews, which will run up to Christmas, and that's going to begin in three Sundays' time. Dr. Moffat, a Hebrews scholar from the Divinity Department, is going to be introducing the series for us, and that really will be one not to miss. But in between the sermon series, we have this blessed opportunity to just engage with various topics and scriptures that the Lord seems to be laying on our hearts at the time. And today, I want us to look, about, look at a, a well-known story from Luke chapter 24. If you have a phone with you, you might want to turn there right away. Or even a Bible. Some people actually have uh, paper documentation still in this day and age. Uh, we join the story late on Easter Day, the first Easter Day. The news is just breaking that Jesus has come back from the dead. At this point, it's just a rumor, and people don't know what to make of it, and some just don't believe in it at all, can't dare to believe. And we're going to read from verse 13. It's quite a long section of Scripture, but um, it's good to put things in context, isn't it? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things, the resurrection, that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? We're just going to skip a bit. One of them explains what happened. Jesus, who is the hoped-for Messiah, the deliverer of all Israel, has been killed. His tomb has been found to be empty. And some of them have met with angels who said he was alive, etc. Pick up again at verse 25. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do such doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Well, as I said, this is a well-known story, but in evangelical churches, it's not preached on nearly often enough. At Easter time, churches like us tend to emphasize the cross, and rightly so. Scripture itself says a great deal more about Jesus' betrayal and trial and death than it does about the actual resurrection. And the reason for that, when you think about it, is probably quite simple. At the time of writing, there were still literally hundreds of eyewitnesses, 1 Corinthians 15.5, who had seen Jesus alive after his death. If people had any doubts at all about the resurrection, they were more about the fact of his death than they were that he was seen afterwards. But in fact, the Gospels in Acts 1 also say a fair bit about the time after the resurrection, the 40-day period before he ascended into heaven. And the fact that Luke bothers to include in his narrative the road to Emmaus story indicates the vital importance of this time and crucially, of the personal encounter with the risen Christ. But I think Luke is also addressing three great theological themes here. Jesus' life after death, his continued full humanity, and his deathless ascension into heaven. 
The Gospels are histories, not theology textbooks, so he doesn't state propositions and explain his reasoning for them. Instead, he's more like a lawyer presenting his witnesses one by one. He simply gives us the facts and lets us work out the implications for ourselves. As this story develops, the first challenge the disciples meet is the fact of Jesus being alive at all. He was dead a couple of days ago, and when you're dead, you stay dead, right? Wrong. Apparently not. The second challenge is his continuing health and humanity two days after they watched him be tortured to death. And this is not a a horror film or a ghost story. If, If Jesus hadn't died two days previously, most of this passage recounts pretty mundane events. When you think about it, a walk, a, a chat or two, a couple of meals, it's more like the archers than the exorcist. And then the third challenge comes when Jesus defies the laws of physics once again and leaves the earth altogether. So the first question I think Luke wants us to ask ourselves is, is your Jesus, that is the Jesus you believe in, alive or dead? From verses 13 to 31, as the two disciples journey the seven miles to Emmaus from Jerusalem, they're apparently walking out on the community of faith. When Jesus accosts them and asks what they're talking about, their response in verse 17 is to stand still and look sad. They don't look joyful. They're not believing it. As Cleopas tells the tale, verse 21, he refers to Jesus as the one they had hoped was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped. Now, knowing as they do, verses 21 to 24, what some are saying about the resurrection, nevertheless, they are walking out. They're leaving town. I think there can only be one reason why they would do such a thing at such a crucial time. Their Jesus is dead. They've heard some mystifying stories, but they don't believe it. They don't, as we used to say in London, Adam and Eve it. The thing is, it can be uncomfortable sharing a friendship group where many are convinced that the impossible has happened. But Jesus never promised us a comfortable existence. And he rather likes doing the impossible. When he joined them on the road, verse 16 says, their eyes were closed to the fact that it was him. And in fact, this this passage, if you think about it, contains three significant openings, the first of which takes place in verse 31, when their eyes are opened and they see that it was Jesus all along. But that's a way down the road. For the moment, their eyes are completely closed to his nearness. But I notice that their minds don't seem to be completely closed. At an intellectual level, they're able to accept what he has to say. Because in verse 29, they beg him to stay the night with them. And that's not what you do if you sort of bump into some religious nut and he's gabbling stuff that you've no interest in and no belief in. You don't invite that person to stay the night. Indeed, verse 32, they say their hearts seem to be on fire as he's speaking to them. They really do want what he's saying, but they simply don't see him. I don't think that's a unique problem, unique to them. At an intellectual level, I always accept that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he's Lord. But I don't always see him as he works in my life. We can all too easily slide out of relationship with Jesus into merely believing things about Jesus. 
as we discovered a few weeks back in our talk on Micah 6, a surprising amount of the Old Testament is calling us into a true living relationship with God, not just a distant obedience to him. And unless we take steps to renew our walk with Jesus every day, then like these two disciples, we may not see him even when he's walking right beside us. That's one of the reasons we come together on a Sunday morning, why we share our lives together in home groups, why we drop in on pub church of a Friday lunchtime. Please come, it's a great time. It's also why as individuals we, we take time at the beginning of every day to pray and read and meditate on our own with God and listen to him. If we don't, Jesus very quickly becomes distant or we become distant from him, more to the point. Effectively, he is then little more than a historical character whose person and teachings we value enormously, but whose voice we no longer expect to hear. So we're like these disciples. We're happy to walk down the road to Emmaus discussing him with somebody else, with our friend. But we no longer recognize Jesus himself, even as he walks beside us. Do we see him in the beggar at the side of the road? Do we see him in the long-term patient in a care home? Do you see his hand sometimes in the, um, even the unpleasant events that occur in our day-to-day lives? Are we open to hearing his voice at odd times of the day? Are we expecting him to speak to us when we gather together on Sunday mornings? Well, the old timers used to say if we did expect Jesus to speak, we would bring three books with us to church in addition to the Bible. And I know you've probably got apps on your phone for all of this. But you'd bring a notebook, You'd bring a diary and you'd bring a checkbook if Jesus was really going to talk. Because if Jesus is alive and speaking, we need to be able to respond immediately, positively, in terms of our resources, which is our time, our energy, and our money. So is your Jesus dead or alive? Two, is your Jesus a distant God, an untouchable spirit, or an approachable human being? In verses 32 to 43, our two heroes are by now transformed. And that's what happens when you have an encounter with the risen Christ. Even as they were quitting, he met with them. So they turn right round and head back into the community of faith. As we do when Jesus meets us on the road out of town. And I think three things are worth remarking on here. Firstly, Jesus' inclination to be present whenever people of faith are talking about him. Notice that both in verse 14 and 36, God's people are discussing him when he turns up. Where two or three are gathered in my name, he promises. I'm going to be there. And he keeps his promise. Secondly, as verse 35 puts it, they recognized him in the breaking of bread. I warmly commend to you, Kirsty's forthcoming evenings on the transforming power of meals with Jesus. There's a power in eating together that we would do well to acknowledge. And thirdly, there's the second great opening in verse 32. <coughs> Jesus wants to open our eyes to his presence in our lives, but another thing that he alone can open to us, is the scriptures. 
Perhaps you, like me, know the frustration of reading commentaries and books about passages in the Scripture when God just simply isn't opening the, the Scripture to us. And perhaps, like me, you know how simple, how clear as day it all becomes when he finally does. Oh, oh, oh! Yet, as we just read, even after Jesus opened the Scriptures to these guys, their eyes were still not at that point, opened to his presence. We want to be people of the book, yes, but we also want to be people of the presence. Word and spirit, both. <clears throat> and when our two heroes get back to Jerusalem, it turns out, verse 34, that they're bearers of old news. Like many a Christian, if they'd stayed with the community of faith, they could have saved themselves a long and tedious journey. The second of our three great challenges comes in verse 37, when Jesus just turns up in the room. Sometimes when Jesus appears in ways we aren't used to, it's disconcerting. Human beings ought to walk up the stairs and come in through the door, as we all did today. And Jesus could have done that if he'd wanted to. He just chose not to. And in our own gatherings too, Jesus sometimes appears in ways we don't expect. He sometimes does the unexpected. And we have to get used to that. In verse 37, the disciples are terrified. But really it's just Jesus doing what he does. And Luke is at pains to demonstrate that this really is Jesus. He has a body of flesh and bones that can eat, verse 42, be touched and felt, verse 39. And yes, he is still the same Jesus they saw crucified, verse 40. His hands and feet still bear the nail holes, <clears throat> the scars of crucifixion. As we said before, Luke doesn't express it in theological terms, but the enduring humanity of Jesus, along with his divinity, in what theologians love to call the hypostatic union. Just thought I'd throw that out for you. Say after me, hypostatic union. <laughs> and again, hypostatic union. Marvellous. Now you're all, you're all theologians now. <clears throat> it's vitally important. Luke insists on a full physical resurrection. Holes in hands and feet included. Written probably a little earlier than Luke, Hebrews is, addresses this issue head on. The author speaks at some length about Jesus as our high priest, the one most suited to stand between God and man. And this idea comes to a head in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You see, if our, if our idea of Jesus becomes corrupted with the notion that he used to be a man, but now he is God, then we miss out on this vital relational point. Jesus relates fully to us as human beings. He is one. There is nothing in your heart or mind, 
nothing even in my ugly old heart and mind that is the least bit surprising or shocking to him. In this perfect priesthood, as Hebrews puts it, there is no division between him and us. And there is no division between him and our God. Jesus eats a piece of fish here. In John 21, 9, he even cooks a fish barbecue for his disciples. We might lose sight of it from time to time, but he is still and forever every bit as human as we ourselves are. It is his eternal humanity that enables us to approach with boldness the throne of grace. Not once we've sorted our lives out and eradicated sin, but so that we may receive mercy for sins we've already committed and grace to help us in our time of need, to help us resist the temptations we'll meet in the future. If we really grasped that fact, we would also be much better at grasping onto the throne of grace, the eternal mercy seat that we shall see depicted in the ancient Jewish temple when we get to that part of Exodus and indeed Hebrews. Jesus understands perfectly what we're going through, not only in terms of our suffering, but in terms of our temptations as well. So we can come to him exactly as we are, and through him to the Father, as we shall have a chance to do in a few minutes' time in our ministry time. My daughter Emily used to have a sign on her bedroom door that read, You're entitled to your wrong opinion. And it's true. You're quite entitled. But who do we think Jesus is? Are we going to settle for a wrong opinion or are we going to accept Luke's unequivocal statement that Jesus remains an eternally living, breathing, infinitely loving human being? Thirdly and lastly, is your Jesus still earthbound or has he ascended into heaven? Just before he leaves them, we find the third great opening in our passage. We've seen that he opens spiritually blind eyes and he opens previously locked pages of scripture to us. But now in verse 45, we read that he opens men's minds as well, people's minds. In this case, it's to understand for the first time scriptures that many of them would have known ever since childhood and always thought they understood. The point is that the whole of the Old Testament, familiar as it is, points to him and his redeeming work. But verse 47 makes an even more revolutionary discovery. Certainly revolutionary to Jews of that time, but perhaps also to Christians of our time. That the whole of the Old Testament also indicates the inclusion of all nations, not just the Jews, in the mission of the Christ. The gospel is not principally exclusivist, who's in and who's out. Overwhelmingly in scripture, it is inclusivist, welcoming all comers to the wedding banquet of the king. Three quick footnotes on mission as we move through verses 47 to 49. There's something very deliberate about the way Jesus throws out these three guiding principles at exactly the time he's talking to them about mission. In my humble opinion, this should uh, this should influence and steer all our thinking about mission firstly they were to preach the gospel to the whole world eventually but they were to begin in jerusalem and work outwards in concentric circles 
They were to begin right where they were. It's an immense task, and he tells them where to be in. When, when John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, was, was speaking to leaders in the UK, he often used to use two eating analogies. One was, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And the other was, why worry too much about what's coming next? Why not just eat what's on your plate? So start where you are. Second, they're sent out, verse 48, not as evangelists, but as witnesses. Their job is not to expound theology or or, uh, be wonderful apologetics masters or um, to the great unwashed. That's not the point. They just have to tell their story. They're witnesses. Now, doesn't that make that things easier for us? Notice, too, it's not even their job to achieve success or get results. Their mission is obedience-based not success related thirdly they're only to go out once they are empowered from on high by the holy spirit without him everything we try to do to do for jesus will be doomed to failure so it starts here it starts with simply telling the story and it starts with empowerment of the holy spirit in luke's account these are the very last things he says to them that's how important they were. We really need to listen. Then they set off for Bethany, where he leaves them with a blessing, ascends to heaven, and disappears from their sight. And that is where he stays. That is where he now lives. That is where we should look for him if we need to get in touch. There can be little doubt that this fully alive, fully human Jesus could have had a massive impact if he'd chosen to stick around for several years rather than the 40 days he did before he ascended. But he had more important things to do. When we get stuck into Hebrews, as we're going to in a few weeks, we'll be talking a lot more about the significance of the ascension in terms of our salvation. For now, I just want to leave that theological hook hanging and move on to another vital aspect of the ascended Christ's work. In Ephesians 1, 18 to 21, and I am winding down, I promise, Paul too seems to be concerned with the opening of eyes, of scriptures, and of minds. If his readers could only grasp the full privilege of their situation, they, like us, would get on so much better with this whole business of discipleship that we've signed up for. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The power of God at work in and through us as his church actually derives from the position in which God has placed the risen Jesus. So much as he might have achieved by sticking around on earth, he can do far more through his body, the church. And it is in the ascension that Jesus takes his rightful place with every power of all the ages under his feet. And more than that, 
This all-powerful, risen, living human being who is always known as the friend of sinners is now as completely joined to us, his church, as a head is to its body. He is that important to us. And when you think about it, we are that important to him. Of course we can't do anything without him. But as our head, he has chosen to work only through us, his body. If he hadn't ascended to that position of ultimate power, he could have remained CEO of Jesus PLC. But he could never have been head of the church in the way that he is, head of the universal church, head of individual churches. This is the way it has to be. Jesus the head making the decisions and the church, his body, carrying them out. When he calls, the church must be there to answer, or nothing will happen. Which brings us back again to our notebooks, diaries, and checkbooks. This body of Christ thing, as Paul suggests in Ephesians 1, is something we need our eyes opened to, if we are to see it. And we need to see it before we can be it. But... If we stay in touch with Jesus, not a dead Jesus who was a great hero but who's no longer with us, not an untouchable ghost shrouded in mystery or an unapproachable God who doesn't understand, not an earthbound Jesus of limited capabilities who can work somewhere else in the world but not here and through somebody else but not through us. If we can stay in touch with the real Jesus of Luke 24, the fully alive, fully human and fully divine Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God with everything under his feet. If we can stay in touch with that Jesus, then we will never stop seeing the church as his body on earth and we'll never stop being it. No wonder Luke ends this wonderful gospel with these words. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's stand and I'll say a prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything that you have done for us and everything that you are still doing for us. We thank you that, uh, that your word says you live forever to make intercession for us. That we do indeed have a great high priest in the heavenly places on whom we can rely. And we, we come to you uh, in various states of uh, excitement and fear and uh, belief and unbelief much like the disciples in the time after you rose from the dead. We come to you, some of us, sick in mind, in heart, in body. We come to you, some of us, aware of our sins and failings. But Lord, we come. We don't want to walk away from you and walk away from the community of faith. We want to come to you. So we invite you to come now by your Holy Spirit with your healing power and bless those who, who come forward for prayer ministry. <clears throat>